Brethren, it's interesting. We've had a very, very informative and quite a powerful sermonette to start the day with. But we've also followed that up with what uh, Dr. Winnell is on Dr. Winnell's mind, godly love and how to achieve that. And uh, I work in an office very close to our regional director. Um, I'm going to be talking very much on the line uh, that Mr. Tyler has been speaking about. Because this is obviously on the mind of God at the moment. He wants us to start to realize that we are in treacherous days, very dangerous days. And brethren, we've been taught many a time that we keep the commandments, the precepts of God. But brethren, do you know what it means really to be a worthy or profitable servant? Do you feel sometimes that despite your efforts, you're just not growing spiritually as you should? Maybe you say to yourself, I really am trying the very best I can, but I just don't see much spiritual growth in my life. So what's wrong with me? Am I really an unprofitable servant? And those questions concern every one of us, brethren, in God's church. We are to overcome our carnal tendencies and we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We hear these words, but how? These questions concern every one of us. We've got to overcome our carnal tendencies. But what causes our growth to slow down at times? Can we be good Christians and yet still be unprofitable servants? What does God require of his begotten children. Well, Christ gave the answer over here in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. I thought Mr. Tyler was going to go through my scriptures actually. (laughs) Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Another approach. One of the best known incidents in the Bible is this short conversation that took place between Christ and a rich young ruler. And from all indications, we find that this young man was conscious of his duties. He was faithful. He was respectful. He knelt before Christ and asked him what he should do in order to inherit eternal life. And Christ told him, he told him to keep the commandments. And then to make his meaning even clearer, he quoted the commandments that define uh, man's relationship with his neighbor. And unlike many people today, the rich young ruler didn't argue with Christ's answer. He recognized the validity of the order and the importance of keeping God's laws. In fact, in his own mind, he actually considered himself to be a profitable servant. In verse 20 here, about 10, and in verse 20, We read, and he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. All these things I've kept. Now, this was, of course, an unusual man indeed. I mean, he loved God, and he saw that God loved him. But not many nowadays could stand before Christ and tell him boldly that we had observed all of his commandments all of our life. But unfortunately, brethren, in his own righteousness, this rich young ruler thought he passed the test. He thought he was there, he got it made. What else could there have been for him to do in order to receive his reward? Well, in verse 21, Christ tells him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. Well, that sounds like a pretty harsh command, or so it seemed. Why should anyone uh, be asked to give up so much if he was already doing his best to be good and keeping the commandments? 
It didn't make much sense to this rich young fellow. He was unwilling to go that far to sacrifice to such an extent. So he went away sorrowful in verse 22 because he had many possessions. And that was highlighted to us in the sermonette. So was he a profitable servant, we might ask? Was he fit to be a king? Well, brethren, would you and I have done better had we been in his place? Are we actually doing any better with what Christ is asking of you and I right now, however big or however small? Because, brethren, if your sense of values is no better than the rich young rulers, are you then unworthy or an unprofitable servant? The title of my sermon this afternoon, Prepare to be a King. Well, we've seen that very difficult trial that that young man went through. But, brethren, does God ask the impossible? Wasn't he doing a pretty good job in his own sight? Does God ask the impossible? Well, brethren, you might be shocked and you might even be irritated if uh, I tell you that God expects the impossible of you, of me. He expects the impossible. You may wonder, how do you come to that conclusion? Well, brethren, that's how the apostles felt when they heard Christ gave the answer to the young man in verse 23. Verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So we find ourselves asking, would God ask of me the impossible? And it depends on what is meant by impossible, and of course who is doing it. Christ told his disciples that all things are possible with God. And we need to really understand that, brethren. When we come against trials that we find are so difficult, we put it in God's hands and know that he can bring us through it. And he will if we have faith in him. But uh, I'm reminded, actually, that uh, um, Mr. Apartian, in years back, he he asked a question. He said, what is the greatest gift you can receive in this life? And he said, surely it is God's Holy Spirit. And if you and I are a member of God's church, God has given you and I something the rest of the world does not have. Much is going to be required of us because much has been given to us. Luke 12, 48. For instance, brethren, you cannot by yourself conquer your human nature, however great your your human efforts are. But God can do it. And he does it in us through his Holy Spirit. You cannot win a fight against Satan and the lust of the world. But God can and will if we obey him. You know, though on our own, we're not able to do much, but with God's spirit, we can do the impossible. Your part, my part, is to do God's will, to surrender to him and let him shape and use us as he wishes. Some in God's church believe they're doing this year by merely living good lives. They may be members in good standing, willing to serve whenever called upon. Just like the young man with great possessions, they may consider themselves good Christians, wondering what's left for them to do to inherit eternal life. I've got the game won. I've been baptized. I keep the commandments as quick and I do everything that God requires of me. But brethren, that's not good enough to please God. Even people in the world, people who do not have God's spirit, can be good Christians that way. 
and good questions, of course, I'm putting in, 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 uh, uh, in marks, but that's not enough to please God. Brethren, if your righteousness and your deeds do not exceed theirs, then you and I will not enter the kingdom. They don't have God's spirit, but you and I do. And Christianity must have a different connotation to you and I. Keeping God's commandments, paying the tithes, observing his Sabbath and his feasts, all these things are required of us. It's not something that we do out of our own uh, efforts. God says, if you come to me, I need you to do these things. But brethren, they won't make you and I a worthy servant. We've got to go over and above all of these requirements. We must do what others in the world cannot do. God's spirit in you and I will not only help us obey his commandments in the letter and in the spirit, but will also help us fight against the things you and I are humanly unable to conquer. We've got to go over and above the call of duty because we've received God's spirit and the spirit of love and power that we just read about from Dr. Manal there enables us to do what with human nature we are unwilling and unable to do. And that's why Christ says over here in Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17 and in verse 10, Luke 17 and verse 10. Christ says, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Well, brethren, God's spirit does work through us. And let's just go to the book of Matthew now, Matthew chapter 5, the beautiful attitudes. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus Christ reveals here in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount the difference between what we humanly can do and humanly impossible things that God's Spirit can do through us. He makes the statement here in verse 21, Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Now this is a law that, of course, any human can learn to keep if he's received proper education. He might even be able to go through life without ever being guilty of a crime. But that will not make him a profitable servant in God's sight. In verse 22, Christ specifies. He says, but I say to you, and we need to put our name there. He's talking to you and I when we study this. I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Well, think of it, brethren. This aspect of the law is impossible for any human spirit to, to keep without God's spirit. But the spirit of God gives you and I the help that we need, not only to help us not insult our brother, but even to help you not to grow angry with him. And many people, you know, read verse 27, and Christ says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. You know, many people in the world have learned not to commit adultery. They're faithful to their mates, and are you and I, in respect, a better Christian than they? Do we obey Christ who says in verse 28 that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart? So if you're a faithful husband or a faithful wife, but you still lust after another person, you're far from being a worthy servant. Verse 33, again, 
Christ said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the eternal. Verse 33. Now, any well-intentioned human uh, with the right education can refrain from taking God's name in vain, can avoid cursing or using other foul language. But you, as a true Christian with God's spirit, we've got to do something others cannot do. Verse 34 through to 36. You must not swear at all, neither by heaven, nor by the earth, nor by Jerusalem, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. And how about love? In verse 43, is your love as a Christian different from the love of someone who does not have God's spirit? Christ said, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 43. Now many people succeed in obeying that command. It's easy to love someone who loves you easy to love someone who is close to you and it's just as easy to hate someone who is your enemy who wants to hurt you dropping down here to verse 44 Christ added something more saying that true Christians must love your enemy bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you Well, brethren, you cannot possibly love your enemies the way that you love your friends unless you have God's spirit. It can be really hard to ask God to bless someone who hates you and who will seize every opportunity to hurt and persecute you. But as a Christian, brethren, you and I must help our enemies in need, do good to them, and even lay down our lives for them, as we heard in the sermonette. And this is pretty tough. Can you meet that? Obviously not without God's Spirit. I've had events in my life where I've had uh, difficulties when I was in the aviation field, of people trying to uh, exercise their authority over what my authority was. And I put that into practice. I've mentioned it in the past. But uh, the person who was trying to usurp my authority was, uh, and he was pretty focused on what he wanted to do. And uh, he had quite a temper on him. And one day he came across the buildings and came into my department and uh, accused me of changing everything in the air traffic control field that he was trying to develop. But I was in charge of the software development. And he raved and raved, and I, I thought, wow, how am I going to handle this? And all my colleagues were around wondering what was going to happen because it looked like it could have ended up in, in fisticuffs from one side. And I thought, how do I handle this? And I, I, I gently just said to him, I said, you know, my friend, this is going to cause you a lot of ill health if you let this job get to you like that. And... Um, and I had the opportunity, he, he eventually calmed down and went into the lift. Then I had the opportunity uh, of a, um, an assignment to Fiji uh, to help them with some air traffic um, issues. And uh, I couldn't go because I was um, on another project. And I just mentioned this particular fellow. I said, uh, why not give him an opportunity? And, you know, God bless that. That fellow never never looked at me askance again. We, we were reasonably good friends. And it does work. But I couldn't have done that without God's spirit. I think I would have been pretty angry. <laughs> and we'd have both been angry. But brethren, you know, what God says, it works. And we can only do that if we have God's spirit because that sort of attitude would never have occurred to me. I'm an ex-boxer and I don't like getting caught up in places like that. I do now. I wouldn't put on a pair of boxing gloves again. But, uh, you know, brethren, God's way does work. And we've got to do it. And uh, we can see that much is required of God's servants whose future is, uh, is being a king in God's kingdom. You know, perhaps sometimes we're overwhelmed by the amazing truth that God has called you, has called I, 
to be among those whom he's chosen to use as kings and priests that we read about in Revelation 1 and verse 6. We also, I'm sure we all ask, why me? Out of all the brilliant people in the world, why us? Well, we've got to look at ourselves and say, God knows best. And he's calling the weak and the base of this world so that no flesh will end up glorying. Mr. Churchill, if he would have been called, he'd say, well, of course, I'm the man to lead the nations. A wonderful man, but uh, he's going to have one of us say to Mr. Churchill, there is a way of life that I can help you to live. And in time, of course, those people will, will bear good fruits and have incredible positions uh, in God's kingdom. But he's going to use the weak and the base to bring that about. You know, it's certainly a very tall order for you and I to fulfill what God wants us to do. We constantly need to meditate. We constantly need to understand that which is being prepared for you and I. To have that vision, that perception of God's kingdom. And I wonder, brethren, do we ever feel that we're better equipped for this future assignment now than when our minds were first opened to understand God's plan for your life. How is it going for you at the moment? Do you feel that you're better equipped for this future assignment now? Well, brethren, when we were called, certainly I know from my my, uh, uh, experience that we had that first love. We were excited. We wanted to get baptized as quickly as we could. I came in like an express train, I can tell you. I, I, I heard Mr. Armstrong way back in 53 on, on Luxembourg. I'd heard him again in the 60s, and I'd heard him again um, in, in, in Africa. But I didn't do anything about it. And until God, I think, had had enough of, of me prevaricating, and uh, my wife and I were faced with a business collapse. We'd gone into a business thinking this is the way to uh, um, ensconce ourselves up in North Queensland forever. No one could move us. And then the business went crash. And I called out to God. And uh, how it all came about, I've told you many a time, but uh, I tried to put the plain truth off the stands in my airport, get the mood out. God wasn't having that. (laughs) So in the end, I... Was given three of the magazines because I was about to, to, to turf them out. Uh, why? Because people were leaving magazines all over the terminals. They were free and uh, they were making a mess. And in the humid um, Mackay Sun uh, lit days, they were all drooping. The covers would all droop off the stand. It just looked a mess. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I called the, the local pastor in from the, from the Worldwide Church of God and uh, eventually we came to an understanding that I could attend church, <laughs> magazine stay, you get a five-year contract for nothing. <laughs> but you know, brethren, we had that love and um, everything in life now was God. But all these decades later, we have to ask ourselves, are we better equipped than we were then? Are we still as excited about the work that God has called us to do? You know, just as uh, Daniel was, uh, was trained and tested before he was elevated from his status as a captive to a position of rulership, so too are you and I being trained and tested right now in our preparation for our destiny and there is no time to lose and our brethren we've really got to get our minds focused as we heard before from Mr Tyler that we do need to make sure that our lives are not predicated on what we possess physically it's all going to go all going to go my wife says I think she rejoices in this we had a move um, when we came to Canberra and then from Canberra to here 
and we piled up all this junk and she says she's not going to do this again I believe her too we bought a house which is walk in walk out so there's very little there of sentiment to us so it'll be glorious just to flee and leave it (laughs) but we've got to look at it that way brethren because um, we're going to lose it anyway you know, those of us who are getting on it in a few years, we, we won't be here anyway, and where does it all go? The junk goes to my daughter. <laughs> I don't think she'll be happy with what she's got to put up with. So maybe we'll have to get rid of quite a bit. But really, brethren, we've got to make sure that our minds are not focused on the physical things. It's going to be very difficult as time goes by. You know, there's a possibility staring us in the face that pensions could all go you know the government hasn't got any money it's broke every government in the world is broke with the exception perhaps of Germany and uh, Mr Trump now is just signing over billions more for defence another 1.5 billion going to defence on top of what is really a 16 trillion dollar debt it's all going to fall down brethren and so if we are kind of dependent on our pensions and all that don't be be dependent upon God God is our provider that's why he says give us our daily bread and that's where it comes from and he is a God of miracles nothing is impossible for him we need to be getting that level of faith Developing it through God's Spirit. You know, since we're training to become kings, we need to continually ask ourselves what qualities, what characteristics does God look for in a king? You know, David was the greatest king who ever reigned over Israel. And although he was certainly not perfect, his reign became a kind of yardstick against which the reigns of other kings were measured. We find God admonishing Solomon, of course, to walk as your father David walked, 1 Kings 3.14. And we read that King Josiah of Judah, in fact, let's just go to Kings, 2 Kings 22. Second Kings chapter 22 and verse 2. We read here that uh, King Josiah of Judah in Second Kings 22 and verse 2 <coughs> did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. We're saying, staying in 2 Kings for a while. We find here that King David has set an example that other kings were measured against. And scripture describes uh, righteous kings as having followed in David's ways. We find that those who acted wickedly are described as failing to walk in David's ways. 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 2. Here's King Ahaz as an example. 2 Kings 16 and verse 2. Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. So not only was David the gold standard against whom the other kings were compared, but God reveals that David will serve as king over Israel and the kingdom of God. In fact, just uh, uh, let's go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. This is where we read of God's God's future for David. Ezekiel 37 and verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. 
and they shall dwell there, they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So, you know, you've got to understand that David, he wasn't born of royalty. He was not born of royalty. He did not inherit the throne of Israel. Rather, at God's direction, we find the prophet Samuel anointed David as king over Israel. And what qualities did God recognize in David that uh, were above all the other men of Israel, which made him suitable to be their next king? Well, God selects the king. And we find in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, the book of Acts here gives us a brief explanation of why God chose David for this important responsibility. In Acts 13 and verse 22, we find he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So David's approach, his heart, is described as mirroring God's own heart. God had great confidence that David would carry out his instructions. And our Creator knew David's heart, so he knew that Jesse's son would fulfill all of his will. And that didn't mean that God considered David perfect. Far from it. Rather, it meant that God, knowing David's character, was certain that he would faithfully accomplish God's purpose for him. So what qualities was God seeking in someone to replace King Saul? Well, we might just go over here to uh, to First Samuel sixteen. First Samuel Verse 6. We find here that David's brothers were certainly more kingly in outward appearance, yet God found them lacking in the qualities that he most valued. We here see that those qualities that he was looking at, 1 Samuel 16 and in verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, You do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. No, God knew that he could trust David to watch over and care for his people faithfully in the way that he intended. So what specific character traits did God recognize in David? Character character traits that allowed him to anoint David as king with such confidence. Well, he had the essential quality of faith. Scripture reminds us that without faith it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6 One of the essential character traits that God recognized in David was real living faith. And there are several early examples of David's faithful trust in and on reliance of God. 
Perhaps one of the best known examples, of course, of David acting in faith was that of the confrontation uh, with Goliath. David's father sent him to bring provisions, of course, to his older brothers who were serving in the army to, to, to check on their needs over here in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 17 now, just across the page. 1 Samuel 17, 17. We find when David arrived, he observed Goliath. This giant of, uh, of a man had come forward from the camp of the Philistines and had challenged uh, the uh, Israelites as he had morning and evening for 40 days. And when the Israelites saw uh, Goliath advance and proclaim over here in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 10, he said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And of course, in verse 11, you see that they fled in fear. So while others were intimidated and fearful, David's response illustrates the close relationship that he had with his father in heaven and the tremendous faith with which that relationship filled him. David's immediate response was to ask in verse 26, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So when confronted with the spectacle of Goliath, David didn't have time to go and pray and work up some faith. David was filled with faith and it showed in his response to the situation. So how did David come to possess such faith? Well, we won't go there, but in Psalm 119 and verse 97, that gives us insight into David's relationship with God. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. God loved David and David loved God's law and he thought about it constantly. He didn't view God's law as a burden. He didn't consider thinking about God's law as a dull chore that he had to squeeze into his daily routine. You know, thinking about that, brethren, here we are on the Sabbath. Ask yourself, I don't want to show of hands, but have you been through the commandments today? Have you been thinking about keeping those commandments? What I try to do on a, on a, a Sabbath morning while I'm lying in bed is to go through the commandments to remind myself that they are not only in my head, but they're in my heart as well, and to look at myself and say, wow, I've got to do better next week, or had a pretty good week, kept the law. But brethren, we need to be thinking about that law. God says it was David's meditation all the day. Now, I did um, give you some of these uh, statutes and judgment uh, um, scriptures that Dr. Meredith left us with before he died. And uh, if you want them, then I'll make them available to you again. Uh, but um, you, we need to be thinking about those laws because David enjoyed meditating on God's, God's law and his way of life. He says in verse 103 of Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Brethren, is that our reaction when we study God's word? Are they beautiful words that we take note of and know that we've got to put them into effect in our lives? Questions, but we need to be doing something about it, brethren, because the time is short. We're going to be faced, some commentators are saying, 2018, the world is going to change as we've never seen change before. And you know, God talks about things happening suddenly. Suddenly with David there facing Goliath, he didn't go, oh, I've got to have faith now, I've got to build up, I'm going to trust in God. He was already trusting in God, as we should be completely, utterly. David loved God's word, he enjoyed thinking about it, and it was edified by it. And the result of his life was obvious. In verse 105 of Psalm 119, he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is the way I'm going and that's my life. So as we prepare for our future in the kingdom of God, do we meditate on God's word as David did? How about uh, 
those lists of scriptures that uh, I gave some of us to learn the law which will be implemented by us as kings well brethren is the time we might spend on bible study prayer and meditation squeezed out by time that we instead choose to spend on television social distractions personal pursuits or are we spending time with God and his word to gain a sense of what is appropriate in our conduct personal appearance how do we present ourselves to others do we let the world around us dictate our behavior brethren only we who and I are spending meaningful time absorbing the principles containing God's word can we honestly say as David did that God's word is a lamp to my feet and out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks Matthew 12 34 it's a world that we're in brethren television is an incredible trap but more than television now you're seeing people watching shows and everything else on their handhelds and there's almost nothing you can't pick up on their handheld it can be used for good but more than ever it's being used as an evil method of communication but if God's word is constantly and necessitously on our minds then it cannot help but be reflected in our conversations with each other and with other people and as we look forward to our future opportunity to really help human beings understand God's way of life and help them to learn how to put that way of life into practice, then we should be building the prerequisite skills right now. In the book of Deuteronomy and verse chapter 6, we find in, in fact, let's just go there, Deuteronomy chapter 5. No, Deuteronomy chapter 6, my apologies. find in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 5 the great commandment you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and in verse 7 God told his people to internalize his words internalize his words and to teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up you know, when we fill our minds with God's law, when we meditate on it day and night, let it be a guide to us in all that we do, we cannot help but talk about it with everyone around us, particularly to those closest to us uh, in our own families. So by filling his mind with God's word, David not only grew to become a man who exhibited great faith, but his steps were obviously guided by the principles that are commanded in God's word. And then we have another characteristic, and the importance of zeal. In Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, we won't turn there, but you'll remember the scripture instructs us in Ecclesiastes 9:10, whatever your heart hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. We're to go about our activities with drive and, of course, with determination. And we should have goals and pursue those goals with great diligence. You know, brethren, are we doing the Bible correspondence course? Have we done it? Should we do it again? Have we read the Bible cover to cover? Do we do it now and again to make sure we're familiar with the whole setup of the Bible? Do we try and read a booklet once a month? That's been my goal for years. And I'm disgusted with myself. I come away from the feast, go read a booklet a month. Has not happened. We've got to make it happen, brethren, we really do. Because you think, I've done that, I read that, I understood that. Okay, well, give us a talk about what that book, that book's all about. Take me through the scriptures. You can't do it. We've got to keep that study up. Those books, you know, I, 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 my only complaint is there are not enough books. And then I think, what a hypocrite. 
<laughs> you haven't even read what we this has been written for us. Well, you have, but you. But you know, this these are the tests that we have, brethren. Try and read a booklet a month. I'm going to do that soon. I hope. We've got books in the office all around. Wonderful selection of books. And, uh, I won't go any further. We just look at them and think, well, one day. <laughs> it's sad. That's the world we live in. You know, you think of Mr. Churchill when he, he, he went through World War II. All of the other wars he went through as well. Um, and he wrote books. Magnificent tomes. And he was obviously a big reader as well. And he ran a country. I don't think he could do that today. Communication is so fast and furious, you don't know where you're going from one minute to the next. Email comes in, do this. Email, do that. No, don't do that. (laughs) And this is how we are. We are a confused bunch of people. We should not be as God's people. We've got to try and make sure that we ask God to give us the time and to develop a routine. You know, we're told the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. That's in Proverbs 12:24. King David was certainly an example of that principle in action. Diligence and zeal were a part of David's character long, long before he was anointed king. And of course, they were part of the reason why God knew that he would do all of God's will. David's duties as a shepherd were very simple, to protect and provide for the flock that was entrusted to his care. David took his responsibilities as a shepherd very, very seriously. He carried them out to the utmost of his ability. And this dedication, this zeal, to fulfill his duties, even when it meant putting his own life at risk, is obvious in his speech before King Saul. Over here in 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 17, in verse 34 through 37, reacting to Goliath's challenge, David came before King Saul. So what was he telling him? 1 Samuel 17, verse 34 through 37. David told him, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the poor of the lion and from the poor of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. What incredible faith. Confronted by a lion or a bear, you know, a less zealous shepherd might have run away in fear or might have thrown a rock or a stick into some half-hearted effort to save the lambs. But zeal was a part of David's character. And it was found in every area of his life. From meditating on God's word to taking care of his father's sheep to answering Goliath's challenge. Another kingly characteristic, and that is humility in action. Humility in action. James reminds us, of course, that God resists the proud. James 4, 6. So humility, of course, the opposite of pride, was evident in David's life. After Samuel uh, anointed David as king, God allowed an evil spirit to trouble Saul. And as a result, David was brought before King Saul uh, to soothe him with music when he was troubled. You'll see that in 1 Samuel 16. And of course, he was skillful as a musician. David had all these other qualities, but to be able to play uh, a harp as he did and to soothe King Saul, he obviously practiced quite a lot. You know, you can't keep up those skills unless it's practice. Piano, 
fingers all go the wrong way if you're not practicing. But he, with that heart, he practiced. And he went from being a a shepherd watching over sheep to standing before the king. And how easy it would have been for a promotion like that to have gone to a young man's head. And yet, when King Saul and the armies of Israel were gathered against the Philistines, what happened? David returned home and he resumed his former duties as a shepherd. First Samuel 17, verse 15. So he went back. He's been anointed king over Israel. He withstood Goliath. Now he's back, back to the fields with the sheep. He had not grown too big for his boots. Instead of having outgrown his old job, he returned to it. You need to think about that. What a humble man he was. He didn't come back home and try to impress his family and his friends with how important he was and how much the king depended on him. So brethren, only if we're humble can we really take correction to heart. Saul was not filled with humility when Samuel corrected him so the correction was not taken to heart. And we find that instead of accepting the correction that Samuel gave to Saul, instead of moving forward with repentance, King Saul rejected the correction and sought to justify his actions. Let's just have a look at that in 1 Samuel 15 because we can learn from the way that Saul reacted. First Samuel. First Samuel fifteen and verse thirteen. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and and, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought me back, Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. All the excuses in the world there try to justify why he didn't do as God commanded him. Brethren, only if we're humble can we truly take correction to heart. So we find there that King Saul rejected the correction, sought to justify his actions. And even after he finally admitted his mistake, uh, he was so preoccupied what others would think of him um, that uh, it, that mattered more to him. In fact, just in verse 30 there in, verse, in chapter 15, just chopping down to verse 30, we find... Uh, 
In verse 28, so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not uh, lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He was so concerned about his friends and neighbors with him being disgraced. But, uh, you know, after committing the mistake, preoccupied with what others would think of him. Saul's guide and his pride, I should say, prevented him from receiving the benefit of correction. His pride's deep response to correction stands in sharp contrast to David's reaction at being corrected in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Won't go through that, but uh, David didn't try to excuse uh, his own actions by shifting some of the blame to Bathsheba or to others. And he reacted with humility uh, to the correction that Nathan delivered. David acknowledged his sin and he asked for forgiveness. Psalm 51, I'm sure you're all aware of it, against you only have I done this, this sin. Against only against you I have sinned. God knew that David wasn't perfect and that he would make more and more mistakes. But he recognized that David, based on the zeal, the humility he had made part of his character, would strive to carry out those duties to the utmost of his ability. He also knew that David would make mistakes, but that he would respond to correction with humility and take it to heart. Know when God looked for a king, you and I are amongst those future kings. When he looked for a king for his people, he looked for someone after his own heart. He looked for someone who he knew would be faithful to follow instructions. He looked for someone who could be guided back on track when he stumbled or went astray. God recognized in David the faith, the seal, the humility that would allow him to be a king after God's own heart. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles that we've recently attended pictured the soon coming time when the kingdom of God is going to be established on the earth. It pictures a time for us, for those whom God has called and prepared for kingship, that we will be teaching human beings how to live in harmony with his word, to experience the fullness of joy that he intends for his children. My question to all of us this afternoon is, are you and I doing all that we can do, as David did, to prepare to be a king? You know, another kingly um, characteristic is one who is a giving person who has good works. You don't work, give, or serve to be seen of men, of course, but of God. And ultimately, our reward is not of men, but it is of God. And we can only strive forward to perfection by allowing God's Holy Spirit to do through you what you humanly cannot do or do not want to do. If keeping the commandments has become a routine for you, or if you keep them just because it's required of you, then you are indeed an unworthy servant. Mr. Apadian made mention during the receivership crisis that happened in the Worldwide Church of God in the 70s. One church member asked a minister to uh, whether tithes and offerings that were being said to Mr. Armstrong uh, in Tucson were tax deductible. If not, the man added, I want to send them somewhere else so that I can be given credit. You know, they have a tax credit over there on offerings. But that was the spirit of get that he was trying to explain. And it will not make anyone a profitable servant. And of course, that man didn't show much understanding or conversion. But brethren, if we're paying God's tithes because we can get a tax deduction, and we don't have that in this country so much, we do have it in New Zealand to an extent. But brethren, if we're paying tithes because um, we're told we must do, then, you know, the money that we pay 
even if we give millions, will make us unfit to be a king if that's our attitude. To serve or give because we expect something in return shows carnal mindedness. So when we compare the man's attitude about uh, um, his tithes, we need to be thinking about the poor widow who gave just the two mites as an offering in Luke 21, verses 3 to 4. We have to ask ourselves, did she expect anything in return? Did men see it? No, but God did. And Christ says in Luke chapter 21 and verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. And of course that poor widow was a worthy servant not because of what she gave, but because of the spirit in which she, gave, uh, she did go to give. So her godly attitude, her devotion and her love, that's what made her do more than was required of her. So, brethren, do we know the difference between a good work, a, a, a good work and good works? Because whatever uh, task, we must endeavour to do a good work, that's for sure, that's required of us. But besides doing a good work, we must have good works, plural. Works that are not required of us, which we perform without expecting anything in return. Let's go over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse 37. It's about a lady being resurrected. I'll start in verse 36. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Well, I wonder how many of us remember that. Because sometimes we read it once, and but that's such a magnificent thing that happened there. Consider what happened to Dorcas, a widow who was, you know, who did more than was required of her. She had good works. And notice the reward she received after she fell sick and died. Her friends who had seen her good works sent for Peter. They showed him the coats, the garments that she had made while she was still alive. And Peter prayed for her, and God heard his prayer, and she was brought back to physical life because of her good works. She probably never dreamt that uh, while she was alive that one day, of course, her good works would be a testimony that would favour her to be brought back to life. So Dorcas had done more than was required of her without expecting anything in return. She was a worthy and profitable servant. So we can say, how about us? Do we have good works, plural? We need to remember that keeping the commandments, praying every day, living a good Christian life, they're only part of the requirement of conversion. And those works will not necessarily make you or I a worthy servant. We have to do what those without God's spirit cannot do. I might just say that again. We have to do what those without God's spirit cannot do. It takes effort. Mr. Armstrong set us a good example. You know, he put forth intense effort doing good works. You know, you look at that uh, incredible building of Ambassador College in Pasadena. 
and it had the reputation of being one of the most uh, beautiful campuses, if not, some people say, the most beautiful campus on the face of the earth. But it didn't just happen to be built that way. It required a lot of hard work, drive and determination and vision that he showed. Mr Armstrong often said that it was God, not him, um, who did everything, and that, of course, was true. But as Mr Armstrong also explained, he had to work as hard as if he, Mr Armstrong, had done it all. So that's precisely what it takes to be a profitable servant, uh, fit to be a king. God is at work, but you and I have to strive as though we are doing the work. We've got to push harder. We've got to push harder and harder as time goes on. And that's what Mr. Armstrong strove to do. That's what Dr. Meredith strove to do. And it's what we must all strive to do. So brethren, you and I cannot be a profitable servant, fit to be a king, if we're selfish, if we're lazy. We cannot please God if we only do what's required of us or do it in order to be seen by men. If you and I have God's spirit, we must live to help and to serve. We are a Christian soldier whose fighting is done by God. We need to look at Christ's example, look at how hard he worked, how much he sacrificed and what he gave up. So more than anyone else, he lived to help, to serve, to sacrifice. And he always did more than what was required of him. So we should do our good works without ever expecting anything in return. If the people around us don't see our works, or if they don't seem to appreciate them, well, we shouldn't worry about it. Perform every task as best we know how, and God will always give us whatever help we need. You know, it's, we've got to be developing our routines and our way of life, always be on time, especially for services. Punctuality is important, things like that, small things. They're important, they're important parts of building our character. We need to pray for God's work, learn to love and to serve. If God sees our good works, that's really what matters. Brethren, God is going to find us to be a profitable servant, to fill the role of a king, and one day we are going to see and hear Christ tell us the words that I'll finish with now in closing in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34. Because this is what we want as a goal in life. Matthew 25 and verse 34, where Christ is telling us here, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That, brethren, is our ultimate goal. We should now prepare to be a king.